Hey, Evelyn. Can I ask you a question? You got a moment? Mm-hmm. Which team do you play for? Well, I, I'm a peach. Well, I was just wondering, because I couldn't figure out why you would throw home when we've got a two-run lead. You let the tying run get on second, and we lost the lead because of you. Now you start using your head. That's not love that's three feet above your ass. <laughs> Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. Why don't you leave her alone, Jimmy? Oh, you zip it, Doris. Rogers Hornsby was my manager, and he called me a talking pile of pig shit. And that was when my parents drove all the way down from Michigan to see me play the game. And did I cry? No, no. No, no. And you know why? No. Because there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. No crying. Howdy, Jimmy. What? She's crying, sir. I didn't mean to do that. Perhaps you chastised her too vehemently. Good rule of thumb. Treat each of these girls as you would treat your mother. You want to ever tell you look like a penis with a little hat on? You're out of here! Oh, no, right no, no, now, no, Jimmy, you, I heard you that! Misunderstood. <laughs> you misunderstood me! No, you misunderstood me! You can't throw me out for that! No, you got a strike! The best no! And that is that one! I can't believe no one ever told you that before! Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, you heard the man. There is no crying in baseball. You got it? My name's Tim Hanlon. It's Good Seats Still Available. Welcome to the proceedings. Uh, It is our weekly journey into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us. Yes, that's the the dulcet tones of, uh, of Tom Hanks. Uh, joined by a myriad of other uh, amazing performers, uh, including Madonna and Gina Davis and John Lovitz and directed by the great Penny Marshall, the late great Penny Marshall. It is a league of their own now celebrating, I think now it's 30th year. Uh, It's been 30 years. Can you believe it? Since 1992, 1993 or so when the movie came out and uh, was uh, a surprise, maybe not a surprise phenomenon. Um, bringing to, I think, the masses, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, the AAGPBL, which, uh, as we know from previous conversations on this little show in the 1940s and early 1950s, uh, they were doing it or dying. Uh, The Rockford Peaches, the Kalamazoo last season, and a whole bunch of others uh, as uh, wartime was uh, setting in Uh, The boys were going abroad and uh, the girls literally stepped up and played baseball for the enjoyment and the distraction of the American populace. And uh, while we've talked about it uh, with great uh, detail in previous conversations, we're going to take a step back a little bit and look at it through the prism of this amazing film that uh, still stands quite uh, large today and uh, has not, uh, frankly, diminished in any way, shape, or form in terms of its impact. Of course, the movie was a league of their own, and uh, we are uh, honored 
uh, to be uh, discussing uh, that movie and its impact and all the kind of stuff around that. Uh, with our guest this week, Aaron Carlson, uh, who has the brand new book out. It is out, if you're listening to this as we release this on Labor Day, September 4th, 2023. It is available as of tomorrow. Uh, it is called No Crying in Baseball, the inside story of a league of their own. Big stars, dugout drama, and a home run for Hollywood. And Aaron uh, is a, a terrific entertainment uh, writer, author, cultural culture and entertainment journalist, I guess you could say. Uh, she's done this kind of stuff before. She's got three Hollywood history books out there, including I'll Have What She's Having, which kind of gets into Nora Ephron and, and the uh, the uh, the movies uh, and the writings that she has done uh, and a bunch of other stuff. You'll see her stuff in like places like Vanity Fair and uh, Town and Country. She's got a Substack uh, newsletter called You've Got Mail. Um, this brand new book, though, from Hachette uh, is uh, It's a Scream. Uh, it gets into... Not only the history of uh, of uh, of the league, but it talks about sort of the formation of the movie, how it came about, how people like Penny Marshall got attached to it, and of course the legacy of the film uh, on a whole different, a bunch of levels, both in in filmmaking and uh, sports history, uh, women's sports, all that kind of stuff. Uh, this is a great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, by all means, search up this episode number 316 on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you'll find a convenient link to order this book. Uh, if it's the day before, well, you can pre-order it. And if it's uh, uh, September 5th or beyond, when you're listening to the show, you'll get it uh, too sweet from, from Amazon about as quickly as humanly possible. Um, and uh, we highly encourage uh, you to, uh, be, uh, to seek out this book and enjoy it. Uh, as I did, luckily, in preparation for this conversation. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get right to it. Uh, here is our, our wonderful conversation uh, with the uh, great entertainment journalist slash author uh, of this particular book, No Crying in Baseball. Here's our conversation with Aaron Carlson we had just a few days ago. Please, as always, enjoy. Why don't you give our audience a bit of a sense of your background? You're a writer by trade, I sense. Um, and maybe we can then segue into how this particular story, or as I'm going to suggest in a minute, multiple stories, um, hit your radar enough to kind of go deep and uh, and very uh, well written on. Yeah, well, thank you, first of all. Um, my background you know, is in journalism. Um, I started writing, if we're going way, way, way back, I started writing for my high school newspaper and you got the bug. I got the bug early on. I was always an observer. I always loved movies. So I wanted to be a movie critic. So I was a teen movie critic for our local newspaper as well, the Beacon News in Aurora, Illinois. And then I went to journalism school at the University of Illinois. Um, and then I got another journalism degree. Sometimes I'm like, why? Um, at uh, Northwestern. And then after that, I started covering film and TV um, news, celebrity news at the Associated Press in New York. And, you know, I've just been doing that ever since. So I wanted to write books, you know, uh, particularly Hollywood histories. So um, 
my first book um, was or is I'll Have What She's Having, the story of the making of Nora Ephron's rom-com trilogy, um, starting with When Harry Met Sally. And then I wrote Queen Meryl, um, an ode to Meryl Streep and her many, many, many films, all I've witched, all of which I've watched <laughs> and wrote about in that book. And then um, my third book is called No Crying in Baseball. And it's the story of the making of A League of Their Own, a classic baseball film that is was made 30 years ago, but is somehow always on television playing somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, I thought it would be a great book to write because it checked off so many boxes for me. Um, it had an irreverent woman director in Penny Marshall and a cast of big boisterous personalities like Tom Hanks and Madonna. And it was beloved. People love this movie. Um, and they're still dressing up as Rockford Peaches <laughs> for Halloween many years later. It still resonates in the culture. And that line, there's no crying in baseball, that was made so iconic by Tom Hanks, you know, is one of the great all-time lines and all-time great scenes in cinema history. Um, I think this movie was due for a book for sure. Yeah, it arguably should have, it probably should have happened sooner, but good for you that uh, you were able to kind of corner the market uh, on it. But so in reading this stuff, um, I, first of all, it's, it's extremely well-written and it's, it's a fun, it's a fun read. Um, but to me, it strikes me and, and this is my framing only. So, um, you know, uh, your mileage may vary, but it feels like it's almost like kind of three books or three stories kind of in one, right? I mean, one clearly is ostensibly about the movie, right? You know, the production and Penny Marshall and the process and the people and the, you know, the the, the fun and, and not so fun parts of all of the, the makeup and getting the, the, the people together for it and all that kind of stuff. The, the second sort of part, and they kind of intertwine in my mind, is the league itself, right? I mean, the whole reason why the, the movie is done, what the inspiration was, what a story laying somewhat hidden or maybe largely hidden uh, until maybe discovery or, or persistent um, pursuit uh, of the story. And then in, 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 I would argue the third part is the legacy, which you're sort of hinting at, right? So the, the legacy of the film, but also the legacy of what came from it, right? The, you know, the, 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 the knowledge of the league, the cosplay that still continues and, and the, and the, <laughs> yeah. and, and women's sports and all that embrace that's really come into its own in the last 10 years. Um, I, I don't know if that's a simplified sort of structure, but that's what it felt like to me. Um, is that kind of a frame maybe of, of how you thought about this book going in um, as you thought about the story and the league and, and all these parts, or did you see this largely just about a story about a movie? Well, you know, at first I, I, um, I was like, I'm just going to write about the making of a movie. And then, like, I started learning more about Penny Marshall, its director. And I started getting into her biography. So the first two chapters are kind of like a biography of Penny Marshall um, that I sort of snuck in, in there. And, um, and, you know, 
try to fit into a larger cohesive narrative um, about women who love sports and play sports, um, you know, making a movie, <laughs> a genre outlier, um, you know, in the baseball genre, um, the, the rare film that shows um, women playing a team sport, not just an individual sport like uh, Moira Kelly in The Cutting Edge or Mariel Hemingway in Personal Best, you know, or Tatum O'Neill, you know, as the one girl ball player in Bad News Bears. <laughs> this was, <laughs> right? This was, is a movie about a group of women who play a team sport and not just any team sport, the sport of baseball, which is traditionally a male dominated pastime. So, you know, in this movie, when it came out, <laughs> it blew the minds of the, you know, men in charge of the studio who had no idea how much it would resonate among young girls. But, you know, why wouldn't, you know, they thought young girls don't play baseball because they didn't at the time. Uh, boys played baseball and still largely do. But what really reached young girls, um, you know, at the time was that you saw, you know, women ball players just being mouthy and annoying and funny and opinionated and getting a little dirt in the skirt and being all the things that you never saw girls get to be on the big screen at the time. And they had that um, victory song. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it, but we oh, all sure. sang it in seven. No, I can't. You don't want me to sing. Okay. But we all sang it at seventh grade recess. Like um, it was a film about female friendship and camaraderie um, that really kind of reflected the way that girls actually talk to each other in real life. Uh, and it was a revelation. Um, and it's it remains the uh, most successful baseball movie of all time. It made more money at the box office than some of my favorites. Um, uh, you know, that would be The Natural, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, and The Sandlot. And I think it made the most money because girls loved it. As we saw from the Barbie phenomenon of the summer, um, women are drivers at the box office. But it was also a great movie that a lot of men loved, too. Um, it had a great script, a great cast and um it just you know it had a lot of heart and um it had great lines not just no crying in baseball but you know there was that scene where tom hanks as jimmy dugan is trying to convince Dottie gina davis's character to stay in the league and he says it's supposed to be hard the hard is what makes it great and that line it just crushes every time i mean that can apply to everything in life right it's a movie that's not just about baseball uh it's about um you know doing the freedom and the you know of doing something that you love the you know it's about the purity of baseball loving baseball um and it's about so many things but and i'm rambling but it, no the, the, it resonates but, but no, for, for sure. Everybody. But the, yeah, but the confluence. So the confluence, I mean, you when you start with the Penny Marshall kind of sort of backstory, right? 
there is absolutely a uh, uh, an overlap there between Herb's story, uh, her um, not so straight line uh, into into a a career in show business. Uh, this story, uh, its discovery, its availability, so to speak, her and her, I guess, attachment to it. Do you want to kind of, without giving it away, kind of give a little bit of a sort of a scene setter as to sort of how these two things, the story and that of hers kind of come together? Yes. So, um, so um, going way, way back <laughs> to 1943, um, Philip K. Wrigley, um, you know, the owner of the Chicago Cubs and literally a chewing gum mogul, <laughs> um, like Gary Marshall in the movie, the candy bar king, Walter Harvey. That was based on Philip K. Wrigley. He started um, the Women's League, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, um, as a way to keep baseball alive during World War II. So the league itself, it lasted until 1954, and it folded for a number of reasons, including poor man management, the rise of television, um, uh, Major League Baseball games were, you know, being televised and capturing eyeballs and audiences that might have gone to these women's games. So the league folded and it faded into obscurity. Like no one had heard about it. It was not in the history books. Uh, not until the 80s when all these women, the veteran ball players, they were in their late 50s, 60s, 70s. They started reuniting. Um, and like they reconnecting and the word started spreading that this league existed. And a lot of journalists kind of smelled a good story. Oh, this is a great human interest angle. And they started covering these women. One of the woman's sons, um, Kelly Kandel, who had a brother, Casey Kandel, in the major leagues, um, decided to, to make a documentary about the league that Penny Marshall saw on PBS when it aired. And she was like, oh, like any good producer, which she was, she also smelled a good story. Oh, we could fictionalize this. I love it. But she also identified with the women in the league and you know the characters, the Dottie Hinsons, the Kit Kellers, the All the Way Mays, because she herself saw, she saw herself as a tomboy. Um, she grew up in the Bronx and she was one of the only women who played sports. Um, she was a really fast runner. She could outrun the boys and she dreamed of becoming an Olympic track athlete. But her mother was like, no, no, you can't run faster than the boys. You've got to let them win. Um, I mean, that never stopped Penny from trying to outrun them, which she did. But she also loved being around men. She was a tomboy. Um, she loved the camaraderie um, and just getting out there and getting dirty and getting physical. And that aspect of her never left. Of course, she went on to play Laverne in the popular 70s sitcom Laverne and Shirley. But she introduced slapstick to that sitcom. Like she would do funny bits um, and maneuver her body in crazy ways just to get all of these laughs. Like she 
had this really um, inventive physicality that recalled uh, Lucille Ball and all, I Love Lucy. Um, so everything that she did when she went on to direct had like a physical element to it. Um, and she loved, loved, loved sports. She was a legendary collector of sports memorabilia. Like, I think I, I wrote about this in the book, but uh, professional athletes, athletes would speak in hushed tones <laughs> of her um, collection. Um, she had like all these jerseys signed by Michael Jordan and on and on. But so um, making this movie really resonated with her. And she really wanted to pay tribute to these women who were able to do what so few women ball play baseball players ever could do, which was play in a league of their own. So Penny was just adamant about um, actually including them in the movie at the end. The you know the very sentimental coda of the film set in Cooperstown, where the women are reuniting. Like the studio did not want that. They're like, don't end on the old ladies. Why are you ending on the old ladies? Why not end on Gina and Tom, you know, and Lori Petty? And Penny was like, no, no, no. This is how I want to end it, right here. And she actually invited veteran players of the All-American Girls League to participate. And they were like, she, <laughs> they did an overnight shoot at Cooperstown museum you know at the hall of fame and they were in for the long haul they stayed overnight you know did their scenes and it still got penny every time she thought about it she teared up every time she would think about them um and their enthusiasm for their movie for this movie um they did not love certain parts of it they did not love how gross <laughs> and mean the character of Jimmy Dugan was. In reality, the managers um, of the league, who many came from the major leagues, um, some of them were checked out. None of them were really happy about coaching women, right? Um, but they weren't rude or crude. So that was um, a bone of contention. And they also did not like a scene that Penny ended up deleting which was a scene in which Jimmy, the coach of the Rock, Rock, the coach of the Rockford Peaches, um, uh, kissed Dottie, his star player, who was married and had a husband off fighting the war. It was a moment of passion, and the studio wanted it because they wanted that undercurrent of sexual tension between the two leads. Uh, but the original player, you know, the veteran players were like, no, no, that would never happen. That would never happen in a million years. Um, Dottie would never um, betray her husband in that way. So that scene was cut. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Well, it, it does bring up, I was going to wait till a little bit later, but it certainly brings up. Yeah. That, 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 that you call it an undertone, but obviously that became more the overtone for the, um, well, recently canceled, but perhaps maybe not uh, second season, and then then some of the rebooted version of the of uh, for Amazon Prime. We had uh, uh, a couple of the executive producers uh, of that on a few well back back a year and a half ago, uh, and oh, wow. we went to the uh, the debut in, in Rockford. Uh, you know the uh, uh, the the the, um, 
uh, the unveiling of the film and the first episode and stuff. And it, it, that clearly it almost is in reverse of that. It, it, it doesn't shy away from all the stuff, frankly, that Penny's version uh, for whatever reasons didn't um, explore. Um, I, I guess though, before we sort of get into your commentary about sort of that side of it um, and uh, the full story, if you will, um, I, I guess it would not be, uh, incorrect to say that, you know, Penny Marshall was also something of a, of a, of a comedic, uh, voice and, uh, an architect, right? Because, um, this film plays on so many different levels and, uh, fictionalizing what is largely an historical league that actually existed with real people. Um, it's a, it's also a, a sitcom. It's a, it's a funny film, right? With lots of key moments, some of them poignant, but all, you know, with uh, large comic uh, components to it and memorable lines at that. Oh, absolutely. And um, a lot of that has to do with the um, the screenwriters, um, Lowell Gans and his partner, Babalu Mandel. Babalu, sure. Very, very well known in, is... in sitcom worlds, right? Absolutely. Um uh, Lowell started uh, on Laverne and Shirley, and then uh, then he met Babalu, and they have this kind of like connection, <laughs> this shared sense of humor, and they write scenes sitting uh, across from each other, and they sort of like spitball ideas in the air, and it's just like the air, as Lowell, you know, called it, was filled with words, you know, when they wrote this the no crying in baseball scene. They, they were just shouting it, you know, shouting Jimmy Dugan's lines at each other and making each other crack up and just like freestyling that way. So um, they're an incredible comic duo, duo. And they were trying to bring, I would say, um, a cartoonish um, quality, you know, a cartoonish tone to the film that would make it entertaining and fun, you know, to, to sort of neutralize the heavy aspects of it. Um, Penny Marshall had a lot of heart <laughs> and she was, she was more sentimental. Um, her um, mode of storytelling um, with, you know, she liked to um, tell stories, very emotional stories that also entertain. And without, um, you know, Gans and Mandel, I don't think A League of Their Own would be as funny as it is. You know, she was not a writer. Um, she was a producer and a director, but she had this marshmallowy, gooey center. You know, she she could be maudlin. Um, there was a scene, you know, the scene at the very end, um, it's the very end of the Cooperstown sequence. No, 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 no. I think it's, oh gosh. <laughs> there were so many endings of the movie. I wrote this book on this. Now I'm confused. But she zeroes in on the official team photo. And the camera sort of zeroes in on Dottie and Kit. And it stays there a while. Uh, her editor wanted to take that scene out of the movie. He's like, this is too ooey gooey this is too sentimental and she goes nah I like it like that um she had this great sense uh, about what would make people cry 
especially if she cried, if she cried at something, she kept it in. But but without those writers, you would not have um, so so much humor. You would not have um, that no crying in baseball scene. Um, you wouldn't have um, Stillwell Angel or Stillwell De Devil uh, wreaking havoc on on the bus. Um, they brought so much of um, of their shared sense of humor to the movie um, that that I think, uh, like I said, that um, that I think was missing. Okay, now this could be controversial. <laughs> I think that sense of humor was missing from the reboot. And um, I really, really enjoyed the reboot. I cried through the entire thing, but, um, but I was missing, um, I was missing kind of that exaggerated tone. The Madonna of it. I was missing the, oh, you, you zip it, Doris. Um, and it didn't have the scope that the the movie had and it didn't have the sheen that the movie had um it had high production values and a big budget but it was missing um it was missing tom hanks as well <laughs> yeah we or, jo or john or john lovitz type character right yeah i mean the, the, right yeah i i don't disagree uh i, I there to me it's yeah. interesting i, I don't want to I, I it's almost like they're two different approaches to the same they, topic and they are two, two things can be true at the same time i guess right in a perfect world though right, right? i mean I, I guess where i was going to go with this the, to start was that you know you're talking about the uh the, the writer team right the you know it's yeah. clear that it's clear that they avoided just about the entire sort of uh set of issues that were front and center in in the mm -hmm. reboot in the in in the series and you know I, it was interesting because i i i i knew about the, the series that had the conversation and stuff and when i was sitting in the in the audience watching the first uh episode in uh in rockford they had a beautiful little setup there for you know they they blocked off the whole block and stuff and it was great and it didn't take until i was maybe about uh, maybe 15 minutes from the end of that first episode you felt the you felt the overtones or the undertones or all the tones, and you were it was like, uh, is it going to go there? Is it going to go there? And indeed, it did. And it's like it, it dawned on me what was missing or what had been missing from the movie. Mm -hmm. Yet, I think you're absolutely right. The, the the comedic elements or the lighter elements or the more the buoyantness, I guess, of it um, seemed to be missing a bit. And I don't know if that's that just is, or maybe it was trying to overcompensate perhaps from, you know, I, the original I, presentation. I, I, I think it was. And, um, for good reason, um, Penny totally, <laughs> she totally ignored, um, the true history of the league, which is a large number of the players were gay and that was hidden you know, and swept under the rug of a league of their own. I think possibly out of fear that acknowledging that history would damage the film at the box office. Um, and I, since Penny was so concerned with box office and making her film as broad as possible, um, I 
you know, I could never confirm this, but um, I think she was just panicked at the idea um, of making a movie that, you know, had queer characters, you know, lesbian players. And um, there was a, you know, a story that Rosie O'Donnell, who played Doris Murphy, um, told me that just illustrated that fear for me, <laughs> which is there is a monologue in which Rosie's character, Doris, um, is on the team bus and she's talking about like why she settled for her deadbeat boyfriend um, because he was the only one who didn't think she was weird or uh, make her feel strange because she liked to play baseball. And then she tells her teammates, she's like, you know, on the bus, she's like, you know, though, I think we're all all right. I think we're doing okay. And they nod. And she rips up her boyfriend's picture and throws it out the window. Um, Rosie read a subtext. Rosie, who was gay, read a subtext in the monologue. Um, she thought that Doris was gay and in love with May, all the way May, and totally didn't know what to do with that. She didn't even know that her feelings for May meant that she was, in fact, gay. And so she, you know, that was her reading of the lines. And Penny goes, Rosie, she's like, could you not say it like that? And Rosie's like, say it like what? It's not a gay, and Penny was like, it's not a gay thing. It's a, she felt weird, now she doesn't. <laughs> That's my impression of funny. And um, Rosie um, resist. Rosie understood her character as Penny could not. So she resisted and said the lines the way that she did before. And, um, you know, she won that battle. <laughs> it's in that, you know, um, and a lot of, a lot of lesbians, a lot of gay women watch that scene and feel the same way that uh, that Rosie did about that scene and that monologue. But Penny's apprehension there, um, uh, it was homophobic. Um, let's just put that out there. Um, and it just spoke to her fears about, um, about having her film uh, associated with lesbians. Yeah, I, I, so. I can... I get that. And it's, it's almost like that scene is like an Easter egg uh, in the film, right? Mm -hmm. for, for those who are you know, yeah. kind of trying to uh, discern, if you will, the true story. But I, I thought I'd heard though, that um, uh, uh, Abby and her team at uh, behind the, the creation of, of the new version, my understanding is that they, or at least some of one or two of them approached Penny before she passed on this reboot idea. And she essentially gave it her full blessing and told him to go for it. Um, oh, I, yes, yes, that is true. Um, uh, Penny, um, Penny uh, was ailing. Um, she, in her later years, um, suffered, um, you know, about with cancer and, um, you know, she had diabetes, which um, she eventually died um, of complications from diabetes in 2018. Um, uh, months beforehand, um, she got on a quick phone call, 20 minutes 
with Abby Jacobson, um, the creator of the reboot. And she explained that she didn't have um, enough time um, in the film to address the, um, the, you know, queer characters, you know, the, the history of the league. Um, but she said, you know, I did make time to include, um, you know, to acknowledge the um, racial exclusion within the league by adding that scene of the black woman, you know, throwing that wild ball, ball from the fall line, you know, over Dottie's head and into um, Ellen Sue's glove. So um, she explained that she didn't have the time, um, but I think that was probably um, an, an excuse. <laughs> you know, it was a different time, um, but that's no excuse. But I think she was, you know, just trying to, um, to make Abby feel good, give her blessing and make Abby feel good about sort of uh, picking up where she left off while also making herself, you know, look good in Abby's eyes. Yeah. And, it, and interesting, Rosie um, O'Donnell makes a guest yeah, right? appearance, right? So that, that uh, almost makes yeah. it kind of a full circle kind of moment, right? Or moments. A absolutely. Rosie, um, this story was devastating. So much of, I love the reboot. I really did. Um, so much of it was devastating. <laughs> to be um but rosie played a the owner of a speakeasy which was a safe space for um the players to congregate um you know in secret because they couldn't be out um in public otherwise they would um get kicked out of the league for sure um there was in reality a don't say gay policy. Um, it wasn't just that. It was also it was also the entire system yeah. of them having to be the uh, perfect uh, 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 stand up women absolutely. with the lipstick and the, the the etiquette and all that stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, there were fears of lesbianism um, by the ownership, um, Wrigley, and then his deputies. They they thought that <laughs> you know have a sporty queen would entice men to the ball field and their gambit, you know, there was truth in that. A lot of the men, um, a lot of men showed up to see these like women in short skirts and lipstick um, perform baseball, you know, for laughs, you know, they were sort of a circus act, but then they saw that they could actually play ball and they became real fans. But that's what Wrigley felt that he had to do to get butts in seats. Um, they thought that, um, you know, a lot of these women, they were from cities um, or rural environments. Um, they were tomboys. So they had to go through um, this really demeaning um, etiquette school <laughs> Um in Chicago and they had to like walk with books on their heads, you know, to improve their posture. Um, they, it really was like that scene in the movie, <laughs> which was filmed in Chicago that shows like Gina and Lori and Rosie having to, you know, 
having to meet with the instructors and in approval. And if not, you're out, right? So um, at one point, the actress who played the etiquette instructor, she's like, a lady, you know, always closes her legs or some something like that, I forget. And Lori Petty, actually, she laughed so hard, a genuine laugh. And Penny kept that in the movie. And that's how the players were like in real life. They thought it was hilarious. Um, they thought it was just ridiculous that they had to go to charm school. But it was just something, a price that they had to pay in order to play the game that they loved. All right, what's this? DraftKings Sportsbook. Hey, can you believe we've had seven months without an NFL game? It's crazy, right? Well, good thing that's over because the NFL is here. And DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, mind you, is giving you a can't-miss offer for week one. This week, new customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly when you bet just 5 bucks on any NFL game. Amazing. DraftKings is actually hooking up everybody with game day greatness. All customers can take advantage of two new offers every single game day this September. Just check out the app to see what you can get. So download now and use the code GOODSEATS to sign up for the DraftKings Sportsbook app. New customers can take home $200 in bonus bets instantly just for betting five bucks. That's Promo code GOODSEATS only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. DraftKings Sportsbook, the crown is yours. <sighs> Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling by calling 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, Kansas, 21 plus of age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. See dkng.co slash football for eligibility terms and responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. <sighs> now, back to our conversation. Yeah, look, and I think aside from having the, the, the backstory of the, the league itself and, and, and all the various tips of the proverbial baseball cap to the play and 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 yeah. that camaraderie is actually a very common thread through both of them. They're just expressed um, dramatically or comically differently, but but the, yeah, I mean, you have to you'd have to think that this uh, it, probably at the time crazy experiment born out of necessity because all the boys were going to, to war. Um, you know, this is the craziness of this idea in the first place. Uh, and then the the it just the bonding just naturally had to happen. And and how do you keep sane with all these restrictive rules and, um, you know, the bus trips and 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 all that other stuff? Hijinks have to ensue no matter you know who's on the bus. Right. And, you know, and as the league went on, 
um, the the rules weren't followed. Um, so, um, you know, the league ended um, in the 50s and there wasn't a lot of enforcement because Wrigley sold it off, you know, in the beginning. So, like, the women stopped really paying attention as much um you know the their publicity sort of dried up they had their fans in their different franchises you know in their different towns like fort wayne but you know after a while they're like you know they keep changing the rules on us um you know they keep docking our pay if they do pay us um maybe we just won't put on lipstick so that was the end of the league. Um, but yeah, it's it's really funny what what these women had to do at the beginning to get in the league initially. Um, it recalled um, in the uh, you know mid to late 1800s, there were all these actresses hired, like burlesque troops. <laughs> slash actresses hired to perform baseball for the masses. Um, and they had names like um, the blondes and the brunettes. So um, they were a circus act. You know, some of them I think could actually play, but but they were sort of mimicking um, uh, male behavior while adding their own feminine twists, you know? Um, and just being really silly and funny on the ball field. So um, what Wrigley tried to do was sort of combine that, like feminine performance <laughs> with real ball playing skill. And I guess he had, he decided um, that he had to bring in an etiquette coach to make that happen. <laughs> Well, you know? sadly, sadly, we saw that model. Um, and again, this is a sports history kind of thing. So uh, we saw that model right. repeated in the late 60s with um, uh, the uh, attempt to bring uh, women's professional football uh, into the into uh, into the United States. There was I don't know, six or seven years. It was a, it was a, a halftime exhibition, comical kind of show of girls, women playing football. And there were a couple of teams a couple of team owners at the time that kind of said, you know what, maybe we can step out of the shadow and actually take this seriously because there's some real athletes here. And and this mid-1970s National Women's Professional Football League uh, got set up. It, 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 talk about a, a blip on the radar. It was even less of a blip, I think, than the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. But it was the same idea, the same crazy, you know, novelty act put together by a man right? An entrepreneurial guy, right? Trying to make a buck on, you know, here are people that aren't, you know, shouldn't be playing the sport, playing the sport. Ha ha, let's sell a couple of tickets. And yet from that yeah. came real pursuit. Um, didn't last long after that, but still, um, I, I don't know. I don't know what that says about, well, arguably that that has probably been, you know, shattered finally now in the last, especially the last decade or two, you've got uh, tons of, 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 of women, uh, centric sports now, professionally and otherwise, that are just taking off on their own without any of those, you know, uh, uh, excuses to 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 launch. Right, and 
oh my god I would watch that movie <laughs> and like especially if it, if it had a 1970s vibe like that would be a really good movie um and a kind of a like a tribute to a league of their own um but like foot football style um I love that yeah I mean women's sports um in particular um have really taken off a soccer I mean uh RIP <laughs> to the U.S. women's team in the yeah, World sure. Cup but but the NWSL but, but, um, has been been growing by leaps and bounds I yeah. mean Kansas City the franchise they're they're building their own soccer specific stadium for the women's team there's already a soccer specific stadium for the men's team I mean that's a step up and and then some I mean it's it's well on its way but um uh, Athletes Unlimited uh, with their multiple sports and and the as we record this today the uh, reboot of the uh, women's professional hockey league so on and on and it's 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 wonderful to see absolutely and like effects of Title Nine and also representation um, uh, with like you know Megan Rapino and also I, I'm thinking like. I was like, why haven't, you know, there hasn't been another women's baseball movie, but I just remember in the 2000s, um, like women's soccer movies, you know, and it like Beckham and she's the man. And I feel like soccer really took off in a way that, you know, girls baseball did not because around the age of 12, um, girls are directed to softball as an alternative to baseball. So um, where I think, you know, women's and men's soccer are um, on relatively equal ground, um, you still don't have many women in baseball. And I wonder if that's, is a woman ever going to play Major League Baseball? I mean, that is fascinating to me. I would love to see that happen. But but wow, what a story that will be, you know? <laughs> yeah, what and there, there have been there be. have been multiple um, sort of attempts to to create some some leagues, um, you know, attempts to kind of. I, I think it's a, with all due respect, I think it's a matter of time. Um, I think um, it's right. interesting too because softball is now getting supported again at the pro level uh, on a couple of different fronts. Um, but you know, it almost feels to me like baseball uh, can certainly. Look, I think we're right now we're in a period of time where, um, you know, we're in sort of in a sports boom. I mean, with leagues and stadiums and it just seems like it's I don't want to call it a bubble, but there's you know, if there are four professional pickleball leagues. OK, dare I'll say there's there's probably, <laughs> there's maybe a bubble. But, but now is the time. Right. I mean, it's almost like the 1970s again, but on steroids in terms of alternate leagues, new sports, you know, professionalizing this multiple cities. Um, all that kind of stuff. And I, I guess I'm, I want to sort of backtrack, though, from yeah. your writing, your reporting and your your sort of uh, understanding of this story. And, and in the wake of this film's release and success back then and then through the rearview mirror of 30 years since, um, how much of an effect do you think this film had in perhaps uh, uh, softening the ground, if you will? beyond things like title nine and some of the more substantial, you know, yeah. things, um, it, it almost feels to me that culturally this was a big door opener for accessibility for the idea or the, the belief that not only was this done, but this could be done and maybe applied elsewhere. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Um, the year after A League of Their Own, uh, you know, hit theaters, there was a big spike in the number of girls who played high school softball. Um, I just like I just called that the League of Their Own effects because um, that movie was so huge um, that it could have possibly driven, uh, you know, or fueled more girls to join softball. Um, and then other sports too. Um, Abby Wambach, um, she's the multiple World Cup soccer champ, um, was inspired, or she told me she was inspired um, to play soccer from watching A League of Their Own, specifically the character of Dottie Hinson, who, um, you know, she was the, you know, the most stoic and least funny Rockford Beach um, to Gina's chagrin. But um, she was a competent, confident leader uh, who demonstrated excellence on the ball field. Um, and she was just a killer. And she was, you know, she was better than the boys, you know, better than the boys that Abby knew and that I knew. Um, she was just a superhero. So um, Abby saw that character and thought, I want to be that, you know, and I am that. I'm going to lean into my talents. Um, so she later, <laughs> she later told Gina, you're the reason I'm in sports. So Gina feels this tremendous obligation um, to embrace her legacy as just kind of a catalyst for a lot of the athletes that we see today, including Jessica Mendoza, um, uh, iconic softball player um, and gold medalist. Um, she freaked out <laughs> she, when she met Gina at a sports conference and asked her to sign her ball. Um, Dottie Hinson, number eight. I mean, this, the legacy of league is just imme immeasurable. Um, and I think it will continue as long as, you know, fans, aging millennials like me, <laughs> pass it down to future generations. And as long as cable exists, so will league. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, uh, th th we're only scratching the surface uh, of this book. I mean, th there's a whole sort of yeah. component to this that, that's that's true to your a lot of what your your day job focuses on entertainment and Hollywood and, and movie making and 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 all the craziness that comes with show business. Um, as Woody Allen famously said, they don't call it show show. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I um, I guess I, I I'll sort of sort of wrap up with this sort of cul-de-sac of a question. Um, what, you know, through your eyes, right. And, and the legacy of a film like this and it's life, it's continued life, uh, courtesy of streaming and, and, and instant and always accessible on demandness, which I think is, you know, perhaps one of the greatest gifts that we've ever been able to enjoy in the, in modern life. Um, <laughs> wh what's your take on the current state of Hollywood and, and streaming and all that kind of stuff? not only the strikes and, and why, but also the format of streaming and perhaps the decline of, you know, uh, theatrical film uh, experiences and that kind of stuff. I mean, um, where do you think we're headed for future storytelling, perhaps like that football league version or another take, if you will, right. on, on league or any of these other great stories that 
arguably need to be seen and enjoyed. Um, I, okay. So I have, um, complicated feelings about streaming. I, I think there are too many options <laughs> and they're often overwhelming and it makes me nostalgic uh, for a time when you go to blockbuster video and you just sort of pick up whatever, um, you know, tapes are left over, you know, maybe you can't get Jurassic park because that's all checked out, but you'll get something else. Um, I just, everything is so immediately available and so saturated and there's just so many options. Um, that's why a film like a league of their own was able to stand out as it did and make so much money because it was one of a few options. And a lot of it, a lot of the stuff that came out in 1992 was mediocre this film is excellent. So, um, and it was one of a handful of really excellent films, commercial films that year. So it was able to, um, it was able to make a lot of money um, because there was just, you know, there was less stuff <laughs> to distract us in this attention economy we're living in now. Um, that said, I love that I can just call up whatever film I want to see at exactly the moment that I want to see it. I love that about streaming. Um, I think theatrical, the theatrical experience is the way that we should experience films. And that was so apparent uh, this summer when millions of people went to go see Oppenheimer and Barbie sometimes on the same day. <laughs> the Barbenheimer phenomenon just proved how valuable um, the, you know, see the theatrical experience is, how wonderful it is to experience a movie collectively and just the fun of feeling of being part of something bigger than yourself and that sense of community, um, you know, that results when you go see a movie that you're really excited about with other people. And sometimes you're wearing pink to celebrate Barbie. And it just feels like, you know, going to see the Eras concert, the Taylor Swift concert, but much, much cheaper. That was what going to see Barbie felt like to me. And it's it broke a billion worldwide with a female director. And what I hope, um, what I, I hope the strike ends and soon because it's not the writers and the actors, you know, who are delaying <laughs> productions. It's the studios and the studios should, should see from the success of a film like Barbie, an original script. Yes. Based on a toy, a piece of IP that was really popular in the eighties and makes us feel nostalgic, but it was a funny original script um, with fantastic performances. And it wasn't, you know, a piece of the Marvel cinematic universe. Um, I think studios should look at that and say, hey, let's make more original movies and let's make some more original movies that perhaps appeal to women. Um, and I say more Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> more films like Barbie, more films like A League of Their Own, um, and give 
the Greta Gerwigs of wor of the world um, as much money as possible <laughs> to make the kind of movies that they want to make because they know what people want to see. Um, I feel like if a movie like Barbie um, were released on Netflix or Amazon Prime, it would disappear into the algorithm, into the glut, and it would just drown. Whereas, um, you know, the the big screen give it such gives it a chance to stand out like you know the movies used to i think that's well put that's my um, long that's no, my I, long I, answer i i i agree wholeheartedly <laughs> i it's interesting though as you were saying that i also you know i think back now to the topic at hand right 30 years ago this movie you know if if one has the ability to watch it or record it or or stream it um I think the film holds up tremendously well, right? I mean, not many movies, not a ton of movies from 30 years ago survive, you know, uh, modernization, if you will. But maybe because it's a throwback movie and it's it's so well done in terms of costumes and 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 the comic timing and all that kind of stuff is it holds up really well. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's they it it is aged really at all. Uh, it does in some respects. Um, I want to say the uh, bookends, <laughs> the contemporary scenes featuring oh, I, I agree. older sure, pieces. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I get that. Those are those are dated, and I get that. Um, but almost like it, like good dated. <laughs> you have the Carly Simon score, um, and like the shoulder pads, and this is an early '90s film, but parts of it feel late '80s. Um, but everything in the middle, like you take, you know, you take the Gina, the Lori, the Hanks, that, you know, all the stuff in the middle of those bookends, you put that on the big screen and you're like, hmm, is this 1992 or is it, you know, 2023? It just, to me, it feels epic. It feels like timeless. Um, and that's also why it endures you know it has that timeless it's a period film that feels timeless well i appreciate your your taking time to 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 share that with us. i you know it's interesting i wonder <laughs> given that the actors really have not much to do maybe a few of them could join you on your book tour <laughs> you know if gina oh or, my god <laughs> or Ankus, i mean some of these people could you know come around and you know talk about the book and talk about the movie and stuff it's i, I don't know what else are they gonna do Right. I feel like um, nobody's working now, um, but I, you know, uh, some people have read it and love it. Um, I hope those that haven't read it yet um, will love it too and um, be proud of, I hope they'll be proud of um, their legacy in this movie. And even if you did you know, one iconic film your entire career. That's a really, really good film to have on your resume. Some actors work their entire lives while waiting tables to star in a movie like that. So even if you were in the movie and you're not a household name, well, you are to somebody, to a lot of fans out there. And a lot of the, the actresses are leaning into that legacy and embracing it as they haven't before, you know, cause it's, it's, um, 
it's uh, a lucky thing to be in a movie like that, especially in an era when movies are mattering less and there are so many of them streaming all at once. Um, it's, it's a slice of nostalgia that um, personally, um, if I were an actress, I would love to have on my resume. And that's my long-winded answer to, for that. But um, um, my indirect way of saying that um, I think some of these actors were embarrassed that they um, that League was their one big film. And I think they should be proud of that. All right. She was delightful. Don't you agree? Erin Carlson is the author. The book is called No Crying in Baseball, the inside story of a league of their own. Big stars, dugout drama, and a home run for Hollywood. It is published by Hachette. It is available probably now. If you're listening to this on the 4th of September, uh, Labor Day, uh, when we drop this episode, it is technically available not until tomorrow, but why can't you pre-order it now and make sure that you get it as quickly as humanly possible? And if you're listening on the 5th or beyond, well, it's available now. Uh, our uh, best advice to you is to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number 316. It'll be right there on the front page. And uh, find the convenient link or two to the book. It'll take you to Amazon and you can get it in uh, hardcover version, Kindle version, or in audiobook form via Audible. Any way you can humanly digest it, you can uh, do so. Uh, we'll get a couple of shekels of referral love. We appreciate that, of course. Uh, and um, while you're online buying many copies of the book for yourself and your friends, why not also uh, tool over to uh, Aaron's website at AaronLCarlson.com. That's Aaron, E-R-I-N, the letter L as in Larry, Carlson, C-A-R-L-S-O-N. AaronLCarlson.com. Yes, you say that three times fast. Hard to do. On X slash Twitter, you can find her at AaronLCarlson as well. Uh, she's also on Threads and Instagram. Both of those places, of course, you know, they're jointly owned by the same friggin' company. Aaron Lee, L-E-I-G-H, Carlson. Aaron Lee Carlson is where you'll find her there. And yes, check out her Substack for free uh, weekly uh musings at uh on substack it's called you've got mail so check that out uh as well it's a delightful read and there's a great post uh about uh, the book and her process of uh debuting it and all that kind of stuff uh if you are listening to this on the 4th or 5th of september and you happen to be in the chicago area you can be uh there present for the actual launch the actual physical launch of the book uh, at City Lit Books in Chicago. Uh, if you are listening to this later in the month on Wednesday, September 20th, uh, you can meet Aaron uh, for a book signing uh, in Los Angeles at Book Soup. And uh, you can check for other upcoming events uh, in the uh, the launch of this book as well at uh, AaronLCarson.com, Carlson.com. Uh, let's see. You'll find us again at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. Of course, our website. Uh, you'll find us on X slash Twitter. Uh, his eyebrows arched and his eyes looking uh, skyward uh, at the whatever the name and 
the construction of this uh, social site is, uh, you'll find us there at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And of course, you will find us on Facebook as well. You can send us email uh, at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, let's see what else. Our pal Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you for the knob twiddling this week, of course, as always. And uh, we appreciate your listening and your support of the show. Much, much more to come in the weeks and months ahead. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care of yourselves and uh, enjoy the last moments of summer.